Welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on Carrie O'Brien and William Robin, co-authors of the book On Minimalism, Documenting a Musical Movement from University of California Press. Before we get to that, I want to let you know that we have the first of a small line of Spotlight On collectibles available at spotlightonpodcast.com store. Just in time to treat yourself or someone you care about to a gift this upcoming holiday season. Have a look. Philip Glass, Steve Reich, Terry Riley, and Lamont Young are stereotypically described as the big four of minimalism in music. While On Minimalism does nothing to undermine or belittle their pioneering and important contributions to the form, the authors widen the aperture to show a broader scope to the music. From its beginnings in the psychedelic counterculture through its present-day influences on ambient jazz, doom metal, and electronic music. The book encompasses figures as diverse as Yoko Ono and Brian Eno, John and Alice Coltrane, Pauline Oliveris and Julius Eastman, as well as many other well- and little-known names and subgenres. There's also a much-due focus on the contributions of women, people of color, and LGBTQ musicians. I love this book, and I think listeners to this podcast will as well. As for the authors and today's guests, Carrie O'Brien is a writer and musicologist who teaches at Cornish College of the Arts here in Seattle. William Robin is Associate Professor of Musicology at the University of Maryland School of Music. And now, Carrie O'Brien, William Robin, on Minimalism. Thank you both for making time. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having Thanks for your interest in the book. Oh, my goodness. As I was getting prepped this morning to dial in, I was thinking how like effusive and patronizing is too much to start the conversation <laughs> with. And uh, so, well, I think what I would like to say is, first of all, it's so exciting that this topic was taken on in such a serious manner. But I also so loved the scope and the ambition of the book. Yeah, it's such a it's such a great sort of expansive journey. Just for the benefit of listeners who may not have come across the book yet, the appendix with the playlist material or the recommended listening is just phenomenal as well. And I'm sure I did what lots of other people did, which was tried to put as much of it into a Spotify playlist as possible. Was actually very surprised at how much of what I would consider important music from the genre or from this field is actually not available on Spotify. And I wonder, just as an opening salvo, do you have any thoughts or impressions as to why that is, especially in a world where pretty much everything's available? One problem is that one of the big four minimalists, Lamont Young, is very resistant to sharing recordings and has been for decades. So you're not going to find any of his music, which is some of the foundational minimalism recordings. You can find them sometimes on YouTube. There are like bootlegs that float around. Only very recently, actually, is he have a Bandcamp page. So there are some recordings there. 
I would also just add that some artists are really resistant to Spotify and they don't want their music there. It, it speaks to, I think, a larger kind of dichotomy that emerges in the history of minimalism, which is you have in the 60s when this art form begins to really emerge and develop, you have everyone is focused primarily on the live experience. You know, it's coming out of this idea of like music as an environment, which is what Young is so wrapped up in, but also Riley and Glass and Reich in different ways. And so it's about these ensembles that they're creating and this live kind of immersive experience, the sound of this music in the rooms it's being conceived. And then you have composers who head in a more kind of like musical works type direction, Reich and Glass being the most representative examples. And for them, it makes total sense to create a piece for an ensemble and have it be recorded and released. And that's what they've been doing now for decades. And then you have other figures in the world of, of minimalism that cling more to this experimental ethos where perhaps the recording captures something, perhaps it is a document of something, but it is not necessarily the musical work. And so synonymous with that, I think, is a resistance generally towards recording. And then also the fact that you can fully curate, like there are many playlists that tell the quote unquote history of minimalism, but that is that more kind of mainstream history that draws on those figures who have placed themselves in this more kind of recorded mainstream commercial slash classical position. And only in the last couple of decades have you seen some of these more underground figures from the 60s begin to have both kind of scholarly credit where it's due, but also a lot of re-releases on vinyl. There are a bunch of important labels going back to the 1990s, early 2000s, like Table of the Elements, but also Unseen Worlds. There are a couple others. What's the one, Carrie, the, the Brooklyn one that does the live blank forms that are re-releasing this music and bringing it back into circulation. And that's kind of part of this just internet culture where things are becoming more and more available, although not necessarily on Spotify, which in many ways is for the betterment of those artists. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious to understand from each of you also sort of by way of prefacing the conversation. I wonder if, if, if you each might tell me a little bit about your engagement with it's it's hard to say with this music because of the scope of how you contextualize the movement but the intention behind the question is to understand a little bit about how you came to this and i wonder if you could each maybe carrie if you wanted to jump in first tell me a little bit about how you came to this yeah so i'm trained as a percussionist and the music of steve reich one of the big four composers and one of the composers i specialize i specialize in this music he was a percussionist himself. He is a percussionist himself. And he wrote a lot of chamber music, music for, you know, five, six, seven percussionists. Percussionists don't have a lot of chamber music just because it's a newer instrument type within kind of classical music for chamber music. We don't have Bach or Mozart pieces written for percussion, but we have Steve Reich. A lot of great chamber music by Steve Reich. And so I played a lot of it a piece called Six Marimbas, Sextet, Nagoya Marimbas. I played these in college and I memorized them all because he encourages it. Uh, the music encourages it. He has a piece called Six Marimbas where it's three marimbas up against three other marimbas. No place for music stand. You're just like up against each other. And there's something about memorizing the music that really got it in me, in my body, in my mind. And I got kind of obsessed with it. So I took a turn in my education rather than going to graduate school for percussion. I went for music history, but I was I was interested in Steve Reich's music and minimalism in general from the beginning with many people trying to turn me other directions, but I continued it. And 
I helped run a summer festival for about a decade where we programmed a lot of minimalist types of music, music that I didn't necessarily perform, but I programmed that I really wanted to hear. That festival actually hosted the academic conference on minimalism one year. And it was at that conference, actually, that I first, not that conference, but a meeting of that conference a few years prior where I met Will, where we were both just presenting about the music of minimalism. You mentioned the piece for marimbas and there being no room for music stands. And I wonder, because this comes up, especially in some of the early works that you talk about in the book, how is that expressed to the musicians? It sounds almost like stage direction, but is that part of the score that basically says six marimbas, three touching each other, no room for music stands? How do you come to that? It's a good question. There's a lot of this music that is like oral tradition. Steve Reich is still alive. Uh Most of the members of his ensemble are still alive and they come to universities and colleges and play. There's so much actually that um, is not written down and people will say, oh no, Jim Price said do it this way or Russell Hartenberger said do it this way. Members from the original ensemble. Actually, within the last two or three years, Russell Hartenberger, a member of the ensemble, published a book about the music of Steve Reich. And it includes a lot of that formerly oral history, which is now written down. There's a lot of photos from the original performances. We follow that. Musicologists get into this idea of historical performance practice. You try to recreate the way that it was originally done. And there's arguments that you could do it a new way also. And people do it in new ways. But I think because the original players are still alive, it's a little harder to take liberties with that. Gosh, that's so fascinating. I could spend an hour talking to you just about that topic, but I'll turn it over to Will. Yeah. How about you, Will? What's your interest in engagement with this? My long-term history is not as specifically focused as Carrie. I studied saxophone, but I actually didn't really interface much as a saxophonist with minimalism for any number of reasons. But even though saxophone is so important to the sound of minimalism. I started getting into that music in high school when I was in really late high school, but really into college, getting into contemporary music. And as I developed my interest as a musicologist, I was really interested in kind of the generations of composers in the U.S. who came after the original minimalists. So looking into kind of the Bang and a Can group in the 1980s and 90s, and then this kind of wave of 2000s, 2010 composers who were still very much influenced by these foundational figures, Glass, Monk. Riley Reich, especially. I ended up writing a dissertation on this quote unquote indie classical scene group of then young composers around New York around 2005, 2010 or so, and ended up writing my first book on Bang and I Can, which was very much dealing with kind of what happens to the legacy of minimalism as a sound, but also as a kind of set of institutional circumstances after 1980 and into the kind of turn of the 21st century moment. Carrie and I had been hanging out at conferences a lot, and I am not a scholar of Steve Reich's music. I'm not really a scholar of Philip Glass's music. I was always like, there are enough people working on that stuff, and I feel like I don't have anything to say that's novel about it. But when Carrie and I, with a few other scholars, were at a minimalism conference that she organized in Knoxville a while back, which was a really incredible conference because it brought together performers and scholars and included a lot of work around minimalist figures that were not typically seen at this Society for Minimalist Music conference, like Mary Jane Leach presenting on Julius Eastman. There's a performance by Alan Fullman that was amazing. And I pitched this idea to, it was, I think there were five of us, and it ended up being just Carrie and I who took the project forward after this kind of initial wave of proposals. But 
there was so much work being done and presented at these conferences that was offering a view of minimalism that seemed fundamentally different from the view of minimalism that you would get if you read like an NPR primer on what minimalism was, or if you looked at a Spotify playlist of what minimalism was. And I wanted to find a way for that story, this kind of scholarly revisionist story to be told in a way that would be both accessible, groundbreaking within scholarship, summarizing all these developments that had happened in the musicological world for the last 10 or 20 years, but also accessible to the folks who are either fans of minimalism or looking for an entry point of minimalism. And so we settled on a primary source reader, which is, you know, a very familiar format in musicology of here's a collection of historical sources. Maybe it's like a primary source reader on the Baroque era. And so you have like, you reprint letters by Bach or like a review of a performance by Handel or something. But the idea was let's bring together historical sources around the story of minimalism from its beginnings in the late 50s to the present day. Let's curate them in a way that you can read front to back uh, a fairly digestible history of minimalism, but you can also kind of skip around for interesting stuff. Let's make sure we foreground the fact that this term has come to represent the so-called big four, these foundational figures, Young, Riley, Reich, and Glass. But let's also make sure that we are telling a story that shows minimalism as a much broader and more diverse phenomenon. So to kind of say here's what this canon story is in the center of this thing. But here's all this other stuff around it that is being funneled in and out in various ways. Here's how these things intersect. And then we organize the book in terms of theme so that we can make really clear and strong connections between the mainstream and the fringes, between folks who are often just seen as like the 10th person on the list of the 10 most popular minimalists. Let's bring them all into the fold kind of together and have them tell conversations across genre and across cultures and stuff. Yeah. We have to talk about the big four so that we can then set aside the big four to have subsequent conversation. And that seems to be something that you address very forthrightly in the book as well, very quickly. But something that's very interesting to me, and it's it has a very self-referential theme that keeps coming up throughout the book, is that the big four were, were so constantly reinforced and the Pantheon was created so early on that almost every subsequent generation and genre of people that you talk to, even some of the Japanese musicians, when you ask them where they came from or what they were listening to or who they were influenced by, or even when they mentioned who they weren't influenced by, they mention one, two, three, four of the big four, thus creating like that. It just reinforces this idea of they're the canon here. It's also interesting in that it's not their fault necessarily. <laughs> like, I don't think you state anywhere in the book that they contribute to that at the detriment of someone else. I'll just say they they do not necessarily deliberately at the detriment, but like include all four members of the big four are maybe actually I'd pull Riley out of that. But Reich, Glass and Young are composers who have developed very strong mythologies around themselves. It's not mm. false mythologies, but they have really done a good job of cultivating a very strong career of telling stories about their work and of placing themselves in a history. Now, this is the exact normal thing every composer does going back centuries, but it's it's also the case that they they see themselves as these historically important figures. And I think that has inspired a lot of the discourse around. They've believed the story too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Lamont Young especially has a, you know, a, a cosmic mythology surrounding his himself. 
to an extent that it makes it hard to have a conversation with him because he is speaking about being a foundational figure in the entire history of music, which is its own kind of unique breed of thing. But yeah. I would also just plug the new book on minimalism by Patrick Nicholson called The Names of Minimalism. And he has a chapter about exactly this in the way that Steve Reich does this. This chapter, I think, is called The Lessons of Minimalism, how he places who came before him, how he places who came after them, and how so many scholars have just taken his word for it, that that's the sequence of influence that they are the founders. Incredible. Thank you for adding to my reading list. Oh, totally. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's not spend the next 40 minutes talking about the big four exclusively, because uh, it's something I, I as a music lover and a, and a person who loves the journey of discovery, very much appreciated about your book. One, you introduced me to names and sounds that I did not necessarily know about before or had heard about but didn't explore. But you also helped me reevaluate music I've known and loved for decades, specifically the early 60s work of John Coltrane or even kind of blue, like... Olatunji. This wasn't music I thought about in this tradition. I guess I knew that the figures were adjacent because geographically they're near each other and they're in the arts community and they're bumping into each other. But I hadn't thought about the deeper influences and the ways these musics melded. If you could open that up for me a little bit and talk about if minimalism is a movement and not a genre, or if it's an ingredient. Can you talk about how it dispersed into other musics? Because quite honestly, where I sit now, it feels like it's everywhere, especially in the last few years. And we could talk about whether it had to do with the pandemic or what it was, but ambient music seems to be in the consciousness in a way it I, I never was in my lifetime. I always thought of it as very fringe, maybe in the modern classical world, it was a thing. And you sort of talk about like the victory of minimalism, like how? Just when you were listing those names earlier, Coltrane and Miles Davis, I was just thinking about a passage in the book that I don't think Carrie and I have ever specifically talked about, but I was I, it just came to mind, which is there's this essay by Lamont Young in this chapter we have on gurus, where he is writing about his guru, Pandit Brannath, who's an important singer of Indian classical music in the Kirana Garana style. And he talks about in this essay playing... Coltrane and Davis for Panapranath and Panapranath is saying, oh, what wonderful music. This is so much like my music. This moment comes like seven chapters after we set up Coltrane and Davis as these foundational figures. And it's just to think about Lamont Young being someone who's obsessed with John Coltrane and Panapranath and or rather modal jazz and Indian raga and bringing them together. And then but also like continuing to find the links between his teachers and his influences and also put them into print and situate them within the discourses. One of the main reasons that we felt compelled to bring these figures into conversation with each other is the documents were showing us that they were all part of the same narrative. And scholars that came before us have also shown that too. The victory of minimalism, it's definitely a victory of some kinds of minimalism, I think. There are victors, and I think there are not necessarily losers, but there are those figures who have become more lauded than others. But it is the case that When we tried to tell the story, it was clear that minimalism today, as you mentioned, is everywhere, but in so many different forms. And some of those forms have social, musical, institutional, 
person-based links directly back to these figures of the 60s. So it's not hard to connect ambient music to Brian Eno being an obsessive listener to Young and Riley and Reich's music and that being in Glass's music and having that inform a lot of his musical ethos that is certainly cultivated in the idea of ambient music. But there are certainly all kinds of ambient musicians who have no specific connection to what we typically think of as minimalism. At the same time, we wanted to fold ambient into our history, not to say like all ambient music is minimalist music, like to claim it, but to make sure that we don't filter out things like new age or ambient because they're not necessarily part of the canonic story of minimalism, which gets into kind of almost questions of high and low, like this high art version of minimalism that would exclude forms of more popular music. And so, yeah, a lot of the ambient musicians who are making stuff today have no particular affinity or, or connection to Reich or Glass. They're more connected to lineages of ambient. But then we print this piece in the 1990s where you have all these British techno musicians saying, what I really like to do is sit down and listen to Glass and Reich when I'm feeling stressed. And like, all I want to do is have them listen to my music and like it. And it's a funny article. Uh, it was printed in Option magazine in the late 90s because basically the author then goes to those musicians, Glass and Reich, and they're kind of like, I, I don't know what to do with this music. There are so many different streams and threads of minimalism. So many of them have been successful in different kinds of ways. And we mix them all together while also showing them separate. We'll be back with more Spotlight On right after this break. I'd like to give one of our listeners my copy of On Minimalism. If you'd like it, go to SpotlightOnPodcast.com. And once you're on the homepage, scroll down to the newsletter sign-up form. To be considered... Simply give us your first name and email address. Current newsletter subscribers will be entered automatically. Enter by noon Pacific time on November 8th. We'll select a recipient at random that afternoon and contact the winner for shipping details. And now, back to Spotlight On. Like a lot of the topics or even some of the individual chapters in your book, I really appreciate how you contextualize this your intention of being a primer, because I left the book feeling like there's 20 more books here. Each chapter is a launch pad. I want to come back to that notion in a minute, but I'm very interested in process music. And something that came up for me in reading your book, and I'd love to know your thoughts on this, maybe Carrie, starting with you because of your familiarity and immersion in Reich's music. Do most people who start by creating process music, ultimately move to more formal composition and notation? Or are there figures who that is what they do and it's what they do long term? And I'm obviously that's an absolutist question, but it does seem like a general truth that people start from a process perspective and then move more traditional. I don't know if I see those two things as separate, like process music and more traditional the thing with a lot of process music is that it often does not require notation because you can explain it quickly. Like Steve Reich's piano phase, it's just two pianists playing a 12-beat melody over and over again, and they move out of phase. And the piece is basically over, or it moves to a new section when they come back into unison. That's the piece. So if you can just like explain the process or his piece, Pendulum Music, you drop... The microphones, they swing over speakers and create shrieking sounds. And the piece is over when the microphone stops swinging. It takes 15 seconds to explain the process. And so you can create process type 
music without knowing musical notation, without being a musician. And there's plenty of people within just like the art world that created what some people would call like sound sculpture. It's a weird type of sorting where if Steve Reich did it, it was a musical composition. But if Richard Serra did it, it was sound art because he's an artist. In that way, I would say if someone created process art and they weren't trained within the classical tradition, they wouldn't continue down that path because they didn't really have the training and or the inclination or the hang up (laughs) that like make someone like Steve Reich want to create a works list that has scores and get a contract with Boozy and Hawks. And they want like PDFs or like actual physical scores. So now there is an actual physical score for something like pendulum music that just has a paragraph of writing. And so, yeah, I, I would say not everyone goes in that direction necessarily. Was pendulum music, just to pick on it for a moment, is that a copyrightable composition at this point? It is copyrighted. Yeah. And I've never seen someone else try to do it and call it something else. But I've seen students just kind of experiment with it and not necessarily say, okay, the piece is beginning. They just set up hanging microphones and they experiment with the idea. But yeah, it's a copyrightable thing. I could perform an evening of that war, or not an evening because it's a relatively short piece, but I can include that in an evening's program of music. And from a performing rights organization point of view, I would pay a public performance royalty on on that. I don't do this a lot, but yeah, whoever he's registered with, BMI or whoever, you would tell them that you did it. Yeah. That's incredible. I mean, I, I hope I'm not sounding mocking because that's not my intention at all, but it's it's a new concept It's for me to hear that. And um, I guess I, I like it. It's, it's very good that you can... I hadn't thought about those repercussions of this this music. Sure. It's also worth saying that's a musical score. So in many ways, it's a much more straightforward kind of case of a composition than a lot of the other stuff that's happening in early minimalism, where it is more experimental, where the, the composer maybe has to be involved. A lot of Lamont Young's music cannot be performed without Lamont. He does not condone performances of it, whether that's because it's improvisatory or collaborative. And some of those questions of improvisation versus collaboration are intensely political around Young's music. But this idea you mentioned of do people start with process music and then always move on to something else speaks to, I think, part of the history of what it means to be a minimalist composer, which is you have, as, as I talked about earlier, someone like Glass or Reich where They develop an early style, and then they bring that early style to bear on subsequently developing increasingly, in some ways, complex or ornate or different musical works that are, you know, different in the sense of my seventh symphony is a development on my sixth symphony. And then you have musicians who are develop a a way of creating music that might be a single approach. I create these incredibly complex drones. And I am going to see that through over the next 30 years in different environments and in different contexts. And the Glass-Reich model is a very typical like capital C composer model, whereas these other models of creating music are less about this kind of very straightforward, I am developing my quote-unquote compositional voice, although that may be what they were doing, and more about I'm more of a music maker, let's say, than a composer, if that makes sense. Yeah, that, that is a good delineation. In so far as you know, or that he has said, is Lamont Young's idea that his music dies with him? 
If he won't let it be recorded and be performed? It's eternal. It is eternal. <laughs> the ensemble that he founded, or he helped to found, it was called the Theater of Eternal Music. And he's drawing on Indian ideas of time in that this music has always been happening. He's channeling it now and it will continue happening after he's gone. In a metaphysical way, the music will always continue. Yeah, I mean, in a metaphysical way, the music has always existed and will always exist. In a practical way, I think there's a big question mark, which is, as far as I know, King Kerry, you can correct me, no one really knows what's going to happen after he passes. There are several people, including his collaborative partner and wife, Marion Zazila, who are closely wrapped up in this material and this archive and the dream house itself, which is the sound and light installation. Whatever the plan is, is totally unclear. And I think a lot of people are wondering because there's an enormous amount of recordings that have never been released that have had fights around them um, about being released. And then there's all kinds of other stuff. I think certainly scholars and a lot of musicians would like to see that material accessible, but it's a complex, one of the more complex stories, I think, in music history in terms of authorship material and, and who it belongs to and where it goes. Yeah, it's very non-dualistic in that if you subscribe to his worldview, he's both incredibly important and not important. <laughs> he's important as a channeler. He's unimportant in that there will be other channelers. But affiliated with him, his students will like carry on this tradition. And he has a number of students who will continue the tradition. I would lean more on the important, he believed himself to be an important channel that only he can pass down the ability to continue it. So he recognizes the next Dalai Lama. He sees the three-year-old <laughs> and says, that's the one. Yes. He has disciples. He takes Panapranath's approach towards guruship. And so there have been many disciples. John E. Choi and Randy Gibson are two notable ones. Randy Gibson's work is featured in our book. But I was just going to quickly say, Terry Riley is also a disciple of Pandit Pranath. And Terry Riley also has disciples. He's in Japan now, and his disciples are there. In, he's teaching now in Japan. It's like any kind of guru lineage. There's different branches to the tree. There's definitely schisms. I, I, I don't think we can speak so much to the discipleship question in terms of schisms, but there's this long ongoing conflict between Young and several of his collaborators from the Theater of Eternal Music, John Cale and Tony Conrad in specific, around the release of their works, around this question of, was this ensemble in the 60s that was performing together essentially a chamber group that Lamont Young wrote compositions for, as Young and Zazila believe, or as Conrad and Cale believe, was this a kind of collaborative improvisatory ensemble creating drones together? And depending on which side you take, that would affect how you perceive what this ensemble was and what the recordings are. So it speaks to, it's one of the fundamental disputes in the history of minimalism that Brandon Joseph has a great book on Tony Conrad and also Patrick Nicholson have litigated. We touch on it briefly in our book. But again, it is part of this story of basically like what is minimalism? Is minimalism a bunch of composers creating musical works or is minimalism a bunch of musicians coming together to collaboratively realize sonic environments in, in some way? I, I talk about this topic in the context of my conversations with other instrumental musicians, especially those right now who are living at the intersection of electroacoustic music, where jazz and electronics are meeting and or improvisational music and electronic music are coming together. And there's some amazing movements around the world, especially in Western Europe that are playing in this area. 
a topic that comes up repeatedly is the idea of, I guess, what Reich or maybe Lamont Young would be calling compositions and scores. Some of these other musicians think of as prompts or framing devices. Let's improvise while we think about this, or let's have this phrase in our minds, and then we're all going to start an improvisation. And those are very different conceptual, compositional, but legal and copyright frameworks. I do not envy whoever is going to have to sort <laughs> sort that out. And it's not going to be, I mean, touch wood, it's not decades away. Like we're going we're gonna to live to see how that resolves or devolves into conflict. And it's going to be, there's actually opportunity for like landmark legal precedent in all that. It's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, all of these foundational figures are approaching their 90s and it's it's a miracle that all four of the big four are still alive it's and incredible. two of them, Riley and Young, are still performing. Um, I don't think Glass performs anymore. Reich, I think, stopped performing, but they're still composing. Um, so there's creative output coming out of all of them. And I think that the Reich and Glass, I, I imagine they're, they're planning for the next phase. They have a very clear institutional apparatus that's professionalized. The archives exist and stuff. And, and I don't know about the other two as much. They fit into more of the modern composer. There's yeah. a, like, <laughs> they're not inventing a wheel for how their works live on. Yeah. But it is just worth mentioning that, like, the early works of Steve Reich, still not young, they were calling it improvisation at the time. Steve Reich has pieces that were, he has a piece called Improvisations on a Watermelon using this particular figure. And there's a book collection called Rethinking Reich. And there's a great chapter in there about Steve Reich's change from calling what he was doing improvisation to calling what he was doing composition. And he's not alone in doing it, but it's a way that like improvised music often categorized as jazz and classical music or notated music often categorized as classical kind of gets sorted in a way that like we actually tried to put back together, especially in the improvisation and experimentation chapter. It's just semantics half the time. Like it's just different vocabulary for different genres, but not necessarily different sounds. Yeah. Your question about what's really the difference about a group just calling what they're doing improvising and another saying, oh, this is the beginning of a musical work is sometimes just a handful of words and like a shared understanding. And it's a part of the whole theater of eternal music, Lamont Young debate is that Lamont Young says that each time they practiced was a musical work that resulted in a recording and the other participants saying like, we were just practicing. The semantic difference can be extremely, can, can be like a philosophical worldview. We have this chapter on ensembles and like, it's pretty clear you have in the seventies, late sixties, early seventies, you have some of the same musicians playing in glass and Reich's ensemble. In Glass's ensemble, you could improvise. In Reich's ensemble, you could not. Although you could do something which was essentially improvisation, which is like realizing these resultant patterns from phasing. Similarly, in Glass's ensemble, you could drink a beer in rehearsal, and in Reich's ensemble, you could not. And some people decided to stick in Glass's and leave Reich's in part because of that. Even between those two composers who are both in a more traditional com composerly idiom, there was a different set of expectations and there was a different set of formalities and whether this was seen as something more, more quote-unquote, disciplined or not. That's a fascinating thread to pull on for a moment because I'm going to draw an analogy, and if you kick me in the head and laugh at me, I'll, I'll, I'll be vulnerable and go out there. But 
while you were both speaking, I was thinking about how this maps into some popular music and especially the music of the sort of late 60s and 70s where bands started to improvise more. Even before that, like to use maybe John Coltrane or, or jazz in general as an example, all very well known for using the American songbook as a basis for improvisation, famously 20 minute version of my favorite things or whatever. The copyright on the records never say all the band members who contributed to the improvisation. Even when it's a John Coltrane composition that's highly improvisational, there were, if not charts, there was some direction. There was some compositional framework, notated or otherwise. In the rock world, you can imagine the example that came up for me was with The Grateful Dead. There are songs that are very much like in the jazz example. It's a song that was written that has a beginning and an end, and the middle is freeform. They're never attributed to the full band. But there are also instances where there are pure improvisational pieces that every band member sits on the copyright. Now, I understand you do that when you're in a multi-decade relationship to keep everybody <laughs> to keep everybody happy. But there's also an honesty in that that's very interesting. I guess what you're saying and what we're talking about here is that there's no formal delineation. It's a matter of ethics and respect and interpersonal relationships and self-regard, self-importance. Sometimes musicians are hired hands who are, are executing your vision. Other times they're full artistic collaborators. It's very hard from the outside to really remark on that. Or it's easy to remark on it, but it's hard to know. You have musicians in Glasses Ensemble, Joan LaBarbera and Dickie Landry, the saxophonist, Joan LaBarbera's the vocalist too. They did it because it was a good gig. Glass had this kind of strange arrangement where he basically made it a full-time group so they could, when they weren't touring, they could collect unemployment. So it was basically a year-round job. Several of the musicians had their own musical things that they would develop on their own. Joan LaBarbera was doing all kinds of different stuff in this period as a composer and as a musician. Landry was recording his own stuff as a saxophonist to composer. When you work with someone who by the 1970s is as famous as Philip Glass, like it's steady work and it's good work and it's creatively fulfilling as a performer. And then you have the opportunity to do your own stuff. And that's the case if you look at Glass or Reich's ensembles now, that it, they're comprised of musicians who have their own artistic worlds as as composers and musicians on the side as well. Yeah, I'd also add Joan LaBarbera played both in Glass's and Reich's group. She also wrote the forward to our book, which is a beautiful essay. Her experience in Steve Reich's ensemble was that when she was doing this thing that was like improvisation, but not called improvisation, she was creating basically like through the repetition of the same pattern played by many people out of sync, these patterns result in the atmosphere and a singer can pick them out. It's like nobody is actually playing the pattern. It's resulting from the mix. And she would sing these resulting patterns. And she said to herself, wait a second, I'm composing here because these things get written down and then they happen over and over again. And it's just, so it's like exactly that issue that made her in part quit the group and also step out as a composer herself. It's when she started releasing her own music under her own name is when she said, wait a second, by performing, I'm actually composing already, but not getting the credit. <laughs> There's a lot I wanted to talk about in terms of other genres that you bring up throughout the book or other movements, be it disco or the downtown New York scene. You touched a little bit on ambient and new age, but that's all really, to me, a proxy 
for the human diversity that I think it's not at the heart of the book is certainly in the soul of the book. Maybe we short circuit some of those specific genre conversations and move right to the people and talk a little bit about, I mean, listen, it's pretty explicit. The big four are four big white men of a certain generation and like all, all that is explicit and implicit in that. But that's just like musically, that's not the beginning and end of minimalism, nor is it demographically. I, I don't even know how to frame or to get more specific with the line of questioning beyond introducing the topic. But I wonder if we could talk a little bit about how minimalism impacted other communities and other peoples. I would love your help in starting that conversation. Because I don't have a specific question other than to say I want to explore that, that, that line. In the month or so after our book came out, I remember there were two different people on Twitter who asked a question along the lines of like, what is your favorite minimalist composition? And all of the responses, 40 or 50 responses probably in each were big four plus Adams. And then sometimes people would throw out a different composer, often a white man. And then sometimes people would say, oh, there are women who are minimalist music. And they would say perhaps Anne Southam or Meredith Monk, or someone would say Julius Deesman as a another non-white man. What was clear about that framing is that there is a way to tell a more diverse story of minimalism as a compositional style in which you include other minimalist composers like Anne Southam. Meredith Monk is a more am ambiguous example because she's such an interdisciplinary figure, like Julius Eastman, like a handful of other non-white men who were composers creating notated music. But if you reframe the, com the conversation around what's your favorite minimalist creation of musical creation, right? And that was one of the ways that we reframed things was if we move beyond this question of quote unquote, capital M minimalist, capital C composition, then we can, again, understand minimalism as much broader than it was, but also begin to bring in the kind of racial, gender, sexuality, diversity that we want, both want to see in a book like this, but also should see in a music book like this because we want to blow up this kind of more narrow notion of minimalism. And so a lot of that intellectual labor of moving minimalism beyond this history of composition was done by other scholars. The incorporation of John Coltrane really comes from the fact that Georgie Lewis um, has made the argument that so many of these figures viewed Coltrane as an influence, but he's always seen as an influence on, not a minimalist himself. And so that helped us make that kind of rhetorical shift to move into the worlds of no-wave rock and kind of post-rock and performance art was something that other scholars have developed, and we took off from there. As we were doing this project, we were making, we have this giant Google Drive folder where we had basically names of everyone we could think of who was either called a minimalist or was doing work that really touched in some way the world of minimalism. Someone like Alice Coltrane, who wasn't necessarily grouped as a minimalist in her life, but was grouped as part of a trans music movement or a kind of a global drone movement or something like this. And then we gathered all the documents we could for all of these different, I don't know, 100 names and wanted to make sure as we were putting these documents together that we were not just featuring white guys. But Carrie, you can speak more to this. Yeah. Another way that we went at this is that we could have created a source reader, like a book of documents, completely filled with profiles from like the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Village Voice. And many historians have told the history of minimalism that way. 
primarily consulting New York-based mainstream media. Or well-known alt media like The Village Voice, right? True, yeah. But always kind of New York-based. And part of what we did was, as a source reader, we were trying to access different kinds of documents and documents from different places that featured different communities as a way to tell different stories. And so, like, our interview with Meredith Monk comes from the feminist magazine Miss. The interview with Alice Coltrane comes from Essence magazine, the Black Women's magazine. There's a piece on Loraji, the ambient musician in the journal The Black American. And part of our argument is that you're going to keep telling the same stories if you keep accessing the same historical documents. And so maybe if we create a book full of documents from different communities in different places, like the Chicago Reader or the Ithaca News, maybe we can start to kind of, yeah, hear other voices. Something that was really cool about the examples you cited with Essence and Miss was how actually great both of those pieces were. I appreciate there might be something patronizing in that comment, but it's more of my own ignorance. I didn't understand the level of discourse that was going on. By the way, just the fact that Alice Coltrane was in essence, there was a point in time in America where Alice Coltrane could be in a magazine so popular. Well, and the the Vogue description of Lamont Young is one of my favorite ever articles about Lamont Young. And it's Vogue magazine, and it's it's great. Similarly, we have Glamour magazine with this little review of the first record of Vinci, and just the way that they describe it is great. Like, it's a really great description, and it it adds something that we don't necessarily think of when we think of Vinci, both that it was reviewed in Glamour magazine and that it was reviewed under a review of a Beatles album. And just the language that the writer Janet Rotter is using to describe it is so rich and textured and different from the very frequently reprinted review of the premiere of NC that the San Francisco Chronicle, for example, printed. By way of, of bringing the conversation home, there's something that I would like to just say personally, which is a lot of the music that you bring into the tent through this book is music that I grew up with and that I've loved over the years. And so you captured the strand of jazz that the jazz I listened to. In fact, McCoy Tyner is sort of my... He's, he's the top of the pantheon for me to have an opportunity after all these years to go back and rehear McCoy's music in this context was like it was a gift. The downtown no wave music, that's something that was a massive influence and, and had a lot of impact on me as sort of a fan of that. I knew the concentric circles went into what I would call like the serious music world. But that combination of like high and low that music always has represented to me where the punks would go to a classical show at night or something like that. You know, I think that for a fan of mid late 20th century music in almost any genre to have Donna Summer show up in this book. Again, I, I understood the lineage she was coming from, but for someone maybe who didn't, it's, it's fun. It's a fun read. I'm very grateful for it. So thank you. And I'm, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for those words. Yeah, that's like exactly why we made the book. So yeah. that's an amazing, that feels very good in my soul to hear. Good. You know, it's funny. Every once in a while, a piece of work comes along that I feel like it was like target marketed for my mind. You know, it's like <laughs> I, I had the first time I remember having that experience was a long time ago, sitting in the movie theater by myself, going to see the big Lebowski. Mm. And I was like, I, 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 
how did this movie get made? Like, <laughs> was I in the, the pitch? Did they say there's this one person this movie's for? And that's how I felt about this book. I felt like this was the book that I didn't know I needed, but I'm so happy to have. So thank you. Thank, thank you. you for this conversation. Thank you so much, Carrie O'Brien and William Robin. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We are produced and edited by Michael Donaldson with theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. For past episodes, web-only exclusives, to make a donation to support our production and to join our mailing list, visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Thank you.